Okay. Now, if you squeak, you can imagine Andrew here, right? Um, actually, Andrew's father died um, recently, so we should uh, keep him in our prayers. Um, but Andrew was able to uh, see him and be with him just before the end. So, uh, it's a tough time for the caddies. Uh, but we're pressing on with Isaiah. Uh, we're in uh, a section of Isaiah, for our chapters uh, 56 through to 66, thereabouts. And uh, hopefully you've got an outline. I'll give you an idea. Sorry, we didn't get it in quick enough to get it in the big handout. How about uh, I pray for Andrew and for us as we begin. Almighty Lord, creator of everything, one who is in control and sustains all things, we pray you would be with us today as we hear what you have said and seek to understand it, seek to live in the light of it. We do pray for Andrew at the moment in that difficult situation. You would bring comfort to the family and also give him wisdom. Uh, Father, uh, please speak to us today by your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to listen to this, this sentence, and think, can you think of places, maybe in your life or in the world, where this might be true? You ready? Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands at a distance. For truth stumbles in the public square, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and whoever turns from evil is despoiled. There are parts of the world today when you can imagine these words ringing very true. Sudan, Zimbabwe, Afghanistan, Iraq, Congo. There are places which are in a truth and a justice vacuum in this world. Places where you just wouldn't know who to trust. And what's more, trusting the wrong people could end up killing you. But it's not just out there, is it? You may have thought of some other places where this might be true, even in peaceful places with good government and good order, such as our own country, can also exhibit this kind of moral vacuum where what is right, what is good, it's actually almost completely fluid, depending on your opinion or the community you happen to be with at the time. Or just that vague suspicion that we're not being told the whole truth. And today we're going to continue to look at a word spoken to a particular nation some 2,500 years ago, which has implications for the whole world in its present state and addresses that issue. Where is truth? Where is justice? You might remember from last week as we started this uh, last series in our uh, mini-series on Isaiah this year, um, we're in the third major section of Isaiah's prophecy in chapters 56 to 66. And the major theme of this section is a word of hope to an anxious and fearful people. Their future is uncertain because 
they have experienced the judgement of their God for turning away from him and ignoring him and it's left them in a fragile state, scattered, no longer altogether and without much clear direction or leadership. What really hurts for these people is that it is a nation that has been given promises by God. They have an agreement with him. Promises that they would be great and that they would be a blessing to other nations. And yet, in reality, there is piddly little backwater territory. Conquered often by other nations, constantly under threat from whatever the latest superpower is. A piddly little backwater territory. The nations around would have laughed at any suggestion that this nation was great in any way. That's the situation that Isaiah speaks to. For some, this has been a profoundly humbling experience and they are actually repentant for their wandering from God. For others, they are actually taking advantage of the situation, taking advantage of this power vacuum for their own purposes. And they were seeking their security in other gods, turning even further away from God. Our section today begins with an overview of that situation and what God plans to do about it. You kind of get the whole story in a few verses and then we go back, uh, back over to look at it in more detail in the rest of the section. So have a look there in verses 14 to 15 of chapter 59. 14 to 15, this is how the situation is summarised. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands at a distance for truth stumbles in the public square and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and whoever turns from evil is despoiled. It's the same as I read out to start with. You can imagine that these things are personified. Justice, you see justice over there knocking on the door, wanting to get in. Somebody opens the door or opens the slot in the door and says, go away, get lost, we don't want you here. Get lost, justice. Righteousness. What's that way over there, just right in the distance? Who is that? Uh, there's a vague memory. Wait for it's on the tip of my tongue. Oh, that's right, that's righteousness. She hasn't been amongst us for a long time. She's way out there. And truth. Who's that useless bum stumbling around in the marketplace like they're drunk? Who's that? Who's that? Oh, that's truth. We don't have much to do with him anymore. He's so unreliable. Uprights, banging on the door, tries to push it in. The door is firmly bolted on the inside. No way in. It's a picture of personal and social moral vacuum which has come from them turning away from the living and true God. In the section just before those two verses, it's described in verse 10 of chapter 59 as a blindness. This idea of people helplessly groping their way round, having no direction. It's also, in that section, there are also people who realise their predicament and they're groaning and moaning at their impotence to make any difference to it. They're hopeless, helpless, moral and social vacuum. And the result is the worst possible one. Those who turn from evil are actually disadvantaged. They're despoiled, they're ridiculed, they're cast out, they're called wrongdoers. Those who want to turn away from evil are called evil themselves. 
Evil is normal and all-pervasive, shutting out and rejecting any objectors. That's the situation. And the second part of the overview is from the Lord's point of view. How does God see that situation? What does he have to say about it? We'll have a look there in verses 15 and 16. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one and was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm brought him victory and his righteousness upheld him. God sees and he feels about it. He reacts to it emotionally. God saw it and it displeased him. God saw it and he was appalled that nothing was being done about it. Appalled. He's angry and appalled at this situation. So what does he do? Well, he gets dressed for battle. He proceeds to act according to his character. Verse 17, he puts on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in fury as in a mantle. Got the picture? God actually putting on some um, uh, clothing for battle to, to actually act in this situation. He's displeased, he's appalled and he starts to get dressed for battle. Two aspects to it. He puts on righteousness as his breastplate and salvation as his helmet. He acts in faithfulness to keep his promises to his people. That's what righteousness is all about. This is what's motivating. This is what's driving his reaction. He's made promises to his people. He's going to act out of that faithfulness. He's motivated by desire to rescue his people. Rescue his beloved, repentant people from their situation. But also... Notice right hand in hand, side by side, there is vengeance and fury. There is wrath. There is a proper response to evil from within God. That evil should have a toehold at all. That people should assert their independence of him and even oppose their maker (coughs) results in an appropriate fury and a determination to do what is just and deal with the culprits. That's what he puts on. That's his clothing. Righteousness and salvation, vengeance and fury. And he acts. And he acts. God exacts his justice. Verse 18, according to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, requital to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render requital. The enemies get what they deserve. His wrath is expended on them. It's fair, it's according to their deeds. There's a repayment for what they've done. There's something that matches their deeds. It's fair and just, but it's retribution. It's described in verse 19b as a, the second half of verse 19, as an irrepressible flood roaring down the valley, driven by a raging storm. This is God going out to exact his justice. Uh, did you see Superman on the weekend, the movie? It's a fairly trite example, I know, but Superman has this, uh, you know, the climax of the whole movie is the baddies do their thing and results in these cosmic reverberations in the world, one of which is earthquakes everywhere. And there's this scene where his buddies, Jimmy and Lois, are in this valley, this, this area, and... Um, there's actually a, a dam. It's an earthquake going on, and there's a dam that's cracking. And uh, all these, you, you see this. It's a brilliant scene, actually. I mean, it's just a model. 
you can tell it's just a model. It's very, uh, very old kind of special effects, but uh, nevertheless, boy, you see this this big dam kind of breaking and the water just slopping down. Um, it's that kind of picture. This vengeance and wrath of God, irrepressible, driven by this great storm. What's more, it's wide in its scope. Did you notice that? It encompasses what's called the coastlands, or in your translation might be the islands. That's a way of referring to the remotest parts of the earth. So it's a widespread kind of justice and retribution here that he talks about. And what are the results? God sees, he reacts emotionally, he puts on some clothing, he acts in character to bring about justice and vengeance. And the results? Well, you see it there, verse 19. So those in the west shall fear the name of the Lord and those in the east his glory. It's a wide scope kind of retribution and judgment so that the Lord will be feared, will be revered, will be respected from the west to the east. A universal acknowledgement of Israel's God will be the result of this act of God. But not only that, verse 20, he will come to Zion as Redeemer to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, says the Lord. He's a word particularly to these people, these scattered, oppressed, anxious people. Remember that they're actually in their predicament because of their sin. God has turned them over to their enemies, the nations around, who are also his own enemies. They're no friends of God, but he's made them his instruments of judgment for Israel. Israel's precious capital city is laid waste, utterly destroyed, and the people are pulled off to exile in a foreign land. Remember, they're in this predicament because of their sin, but as always, God's heart towards his people is to save and restore them. He will be a redeemer to those who have repented of their sin and turned back to God. The idea of redeemer is uh, encompasses this idea of a next of kin who willingly takes up the helpless relative's needs as, as their own. So there's a thing called a kinsman redeemer where a man died, his brother would marry the widow so that she would not, uh, so there would be a continuing of the family name, a taking up of those family responsibilities. That's the idea of redeemer, so rescuing, uh, taking up the helpless plight of others idea. That's the result, a redeeming of, of God's people, of those in Jacob who turn from this transgression. There's an interesting tension there, isn't there? Through a great act of vengeance and judgement, there is great salvation. God, in fact, God saves his own by means of his vengeance on their enemies. God's righteousness and covenant faithfulness and his wrath on sin go together to rescue his people. In that, in that Superman scene I referred to, Superman goes around and he holds back the water or puts, puts up a dew dam to hold back the water. He sort of tries to reverse the effects of this whole thing he does his thing, he acts to save Jimmy and Lois. He does it by defeating the storm, the raging torrent. He, he uh, rescues his friends. 
you have tooth, you, you go to the dentist. To have healthy teeth, you need to have the decay, the nasty stuff drilled out. Feels like, you can, can you imagine it, the drill there? Feels like vengeance. Vengeance the most vengeful people alive, I'm sure. They just love it. I know they just love it. But it needs to happen to have healthy teeth, to save the teeth. That idea. But notice, the place that God comes to as Redeemer is significant. It's Zion. You notice that in verse 20? He will come to Zion as Redeemer. Now that word Zion, that name Zion, refers literally to the name of a hill in the middle of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, on which the Israelites' temple was built. And that place, Zion, signified, symbolised the fact that God himself had established this city and that this nation, and this nation, that he himself was their God who dwelt among them. That's what Zion signified. One of the earlier Israelite writers wrote of this place, a day in your courts, one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper one of the lowliest jobs in the house of my God and dwell in the tents of wickedness. Daniel Courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. This is a significant place for the Israelites, this Zion. It's shorthand here for the city of Jerusalem, but also for all that Jerusalem represented. And that God should return to Zion after this great act of judgment and salvation is incredibly significant. And it becomes, Zion becomes the key theme of this section of Isaiah's prophecy from chapter 59 to 63. This theme of Zion. Let's have a look at it. Let's follow it through a bit. The bulk of the material, actually, there's two whole chapters dedicated to talking about Zion. What will happen to Zion in the wake of this great action of God for injustice? One of Isaiah's great announcements to the helpless Israel, who are groaning under God's judgment, oppressed by the nations, is that they will return with the Lord to Zion. That's a great announcement to Isaiah. They will return with the Lord to Zion and it will really be something. Let's have a look. We'll just dip into chapter 60 and 62. There's a number of factors I want to draw our attention to. First of all, he talks about presence in Zion. 60 verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his, his glory will appear over you. Similarly over in verse 19, The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you by night, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down and your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. God will be there. God comes back to dwell in his people. This great picture of life which is often associated with the glory of God, the utter, utter uniqueness of God, his otherness, his glory. His light will be there. Pictures, they don't want to leave the sun or the moon because God is there. His light will light everything. It will be this beacon amongst the nations. God himself will be present with his people. What's more, they will be restored. Their nationhood will be restored. As a people they will be restored. 60 verse 4. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far away and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. 
they all come back together. It's a great reunion of the nation. They've been scattered all over under the judgment of God and they're brought back together. Righteousness and peace will be restored. We saw that horrible situation. Truth shut out. No righteousness. No justice. But righteousness and peace will be restored in this Zion that God will, will come to. 60 verse 17. Chapter 60 verse 17 for example. Instead of bronze I will bring gold. Instead of iron I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will appoint peace as your overseer and righteousness as your taskmaster. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Violence no more. Devastation, destruction gone. Salvation and praise in their place. Peace and righteousness will rule and mark this Zion that God returns to having redeemed his people. Stark contrast to where they are now. It's a great message of hope. What's more, not only will God be present in his holiness and glory, but he will be in close relationship with them again. It's a lovely picture in chapter 62. Chapter 62. Starting the second half of verse 2. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Have you been to any weddings lately? That beaming, once they get over the nervousness, that that beam of joy and excitement about what's happening. It's just brilliant. And what God is saying to these people is, This big issue that you had, one of the big issues for them was where do we stand with God in all this? Where do we stand with God? God's saying, when I've exacted my justice, when I've redeemed my people and come back to Zion, instead of Israel feeling like an old deserted spinster or widow left on the shelf, she will be as a young bride wedding her lovely sweetheart. She will be given a whole new name. My delight is in her, and the land will be called married. That special relationship, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell with you, is restored. God loves them. He delights in these people that he has saved. It's a beautiful picture. What's more, there's a great reversal. There's a great reversal in this reinstatement of Zion. Particularly its place in its place among the nations. So Zion will be vindicated. At present, it's a piddly little unimpressive territory. But when God comes, for Zion's sake I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication and all the kings your glory. There's this beacon, it's planted in the desert. Israel is back in town. 
God is back. Israel is a player again and everyone will see it. It can't be missed. What's more, those nations around will actually come and serve and revere the Israelites. 60 verses 9 to 16. 60 verses 9 to 16. Talk about this great time and this huge reversal. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall wait for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from far away. There's silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. Your gates, verse 11, your gates shall always be open. Day and night they shall not be shut, so that nations shall bring you their wealth with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain and the pine, to beautify this place of my sanctuary, and I will glorify where my feet rest. The descendants of those who oppressed you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow at your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Previously they've been oppressed, despised by the nations, counted as nothing. Well, in this new Zion where God has come to in his salvation, they're sitting up and taking notice. They're bringing their wealth to the Israelites. They're serving them. They're ministering to them. Complete reversal. Service and reverence instead of oppression and, dis- and despising. Not only that. Not only that. It's not, not just that they're coming and sort of just acknowledging Israel because they have to. They're actually joining in. They're joining in with Israel. This is remarkable. Then the nation should do this. 60 verses, chapter 60, verses 6 and 7. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. You may not think that's a blessing, but it is. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall be acceptable on my altar and I will glorify my glorious house. All the place names there cover the north, south, the east, the west. All the extremities of the area that you can think of. They're coming in to Jerusalem, into Zion, proclaiming the praise of the Lord. They're joining in. Their, their offerings are acceptable at the Israelite temple. They're, they're Israel's God is becoming their God. They're joining in. Not just a reversal. A joining in of the nations. It's a wonderful vision of Zion, isn't it? It's a wonderful vision of a city in which God dwells. His glory is there. He likes it by sheer otherness and uniqueness. This great restoration of Reunions of the families, people gathered in, scattered from all over the place, righteousness and peace rule. That special relationship with God restored. There's a great re- reversal where the nations revere and, ex- and uh, respect and even serve and bring their gifts and even, even, even join in. 
wonderful vision of restored status and significance for this downtrodden, anxious, fearful, oppressed people. That's what Isaiah sees and tells them about. But scattered in all amongst that is another of Isaiah's enigmatic figures. Uh, If you were here for the talks in the previous section of Isaiah, you'll remember Isaiah introducing an individual, a figure called the suffering servant, who will play an important role in the salvation of God's people. And similarly here, there's another figure or individual introduced, an anointed conqueror, who will also play his part in this salvation of God's people. He's, he's first, in, first introduced at the end of that overview section we did earlier, at the end of uh, chapter 59. The Lord brings retribution on his enemies and comes to Zion with his rescued people. And then, verse 21, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouths of your children or out of the mouths of your children's children, says the Lord, from now on and forever. That seems pretty harmless. But the you there is actually singular. It's to an individual. God will make a covenant and agreement with his people and his main way of establishing it, of propagating it, is through the words of this particular individual. It's not addressed to the nation this bit, it's addressed to a figure, an individual. He, he pops up in a number of significant places in this section. And uh, as we look at them, you've got the list of the verses there in your outline, God's anointed conqueror, I've just read the 59.21. We'll just again dive into a couple of those sections to see, get a feel for this figure, this anointed conqueror. There's a number of important things that we find out about him from these passages. The first thing is that he is empowered and commissioned by God. He's empowered and and, uh, commissioned by God. We saw just in 59, uh, 21 just then, how God's spirit is upon him and God has put his words in his mouth. Down in chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, the similar idea, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me, he has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Again, those ideas of spirit and word on this figure. Like the kings, he is anointed. He's specially set apart for his role by God. And God is with him and works through him powerfully by putting his spirit on him. God himself dwells with this one. And again, if your memory is there, and probably isn't, but you go back to Isaiah 53 and places like that where it talks about the suffering servant. It's a very similar picture. The spirit of God is upon him, empowering him. He's commissioned by God himself for his task. Secondly, he has a particular message to proclaim, his proclamation. Again, I'll just read it out in 61, 1-2. He's to bring good news to the oppressed, he's to bind up the brokenhearted, he's to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, he's to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, he's to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God, and by so doing comfort all those who mourn. 
is to announce this great action of God which we saw in overview earlier. This great action of God to save his people. This great announcement that God will save through exacting his justice. That's the message and it's good news for those who are oppressed, those who are broken hearted, those who are captive, those who are prisoners. He's to proclaim to them that God is coming to save. God will bring justice and salvation. He doesn't just talk. He does something. This anointed conqueror. It turns out that he's also the one to bring about God's salvation by exacting judgment. It's really interesting in 61.10 again this figure pops up in the first person and he says I will greatly rejoice in the Lord my whole being shall exalt in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation he has covered me with the robe of righteousness does that ring a bell? Aren't those the things that God put on getting ready to respond to the situation which he saw and was appalled and displeased about? This one decks himself out like God to do the the work of God in addressing the situation. And 63 verses 1 to 6 is probably one of the more chilling passages in the Bible. Have a listen to it. 63 starting at verse 1. Who is this that comes from Edom? from Bosra in garments stained crimson. Who is this so splendidly splendidly robed, marching in his great might? But the picture you're picturing it is in the distance you see a figure coming towards the city. He's got sort of crimsony kind of garments or it looks well that's stained crimson at least. They're trying to make him out he's coming. Then he answers, you want to know who I am? It is I announcing vindication, mighty to save. This is the one who's brought about that vindication that Isaiah was seeing. He's the one who's brought the salvation. That's who he's claiming to be. Why are your robes red, he is asked, and your garments like theirs who tread the winepress? Um, back in those days, you used to make wine by putting all the grapes in a big vat and people used to tread on it to get all the liquid out. That's how they used to squash them. And uh, this guy's got stained crimson clothes and he's asked, uh, why you're right? You look like you've been in the wine press. You've got all the grape stains all over you. He answers, I have trodden the wine press alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their juice spattered on my garments and stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year for my redeeming work had come. I looked but there was no helper. I stared but there was no one to sustain me. So my own arm brought me victory and my wrath sustained me. I trampled down peoples in my anger. I crushed them in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. But we saw an overview earlier. God repaying according to deeds, bringing wrath on his enemies. This one, this anointed conqueror has been the one to bring it about. The stains are blood. He has brought about God's justice. He has repaid people according to their deeds, the nations around. He alone has done it. There's nobody else who could do it. It's a gruesome kind of picture, isn't it? 
He doesn't just talk about it. He's the one through whom God brings it about. He's the agent of God's judgment. Retribution is swift and final. This is this anointed conqueror figure. Especially set apart, he's given a message that's good news to those, but he also acts to bring about that good news, bringing that salvation through retribution and vengeance. He actually does it. We've got the big picture God sees, God acts, God restores and saves. He does it through this anointed conqueror who declares the action and then carries it out. That's his word to these waiting, fearful, anxious, but also those in this moral vacuum where truth and justice and righteousness have no place. That's Isaiah's word to them. The question is, what has it got to do with us? Uh, There are three areas I want us to think about as a result of this passage. First of all, who is the God who reveals himself in this section of Isaiah? Who is the God that reveals himself here? Well, he's a God of justice who will not let evil go unpunished. As unpopular as it sounds, God is a God of vengeance. A God who will repay his enemies according to their deeds. I guess there's a warning implicit in this both to the people of Israel but also to us. Don't be on the wrong side of God. Be sure he will judge and punish according to deeds. He will expend his wrath on those who would assert their independence from him set themselves up as self-rulers and ignore him. See, just because you don't feel animosity towards God doesn't mean you're not his enemy. When you ignore him or when you put created things in his place, you might as well spit in his face. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of God. There's more to say though, isn't there? There's more to say because Side by side in this whole passage there is mercy, there is salvation, there is faithfulness to promises alongside vengeance vengeance and justice. He saves from sin as well as exacting wrath on it. The two go together as couplets, you might have noticed as I read it out. The question is, I guess, how do they work together? Uh, Which is he most? Okay, which one is it, God? What, are you vengeful and wrathful or are you merciful and righteous and faithful to your promises? Um, well, what, what you do find out from this passage is that he's not capricious. It's not that he holds the two, char- the two character traits in opposition, as it were, and arbitrarily picks one to dish out as it takes his fancy. There are religions that have gods just like that. You're never sure which way he's going to go. They're both there and it's almost arbitrary which one he could do either. Either would be right and you know, we'll flip a coin and go for one in one situation and one in the other. It's not like that here. There's a proper order to those attributes here. One uh, famous Christian writer said that God's right hand is his mercy and salvation but his left hand is his judgement and wrath. I'm sorry if that's leftism 
uh, for those of you who are left-handed. But you get the idea. The, the strong, the preference hand is the right hand and his um, judgment and wrath is his left hand. Make no mistake, he will exercise it. But there is a proper order to his attributes. In fact, it would be true to say that his judgment is extended in order to rescue and save and restore. His wrath and retribution come to bring salvation. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to a day when evil in this world is revealed for what it is and when it's dealt with. I'm really looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to a day when the true motives of world leaders will be revealed, when oppressive and self-seeking regimes will be called to account, where moral bankruptcy, rank greed and corruption in our own society will be unearthed and stamped out, where child abusers, wife bashers will all be brought to justice, where liars and cheats will be exposed. I'm looking forward to that day. That's how God will restore the creation which he loves. It's not up to me to do it. God will do it. He'll restore it by judging evil and getting rid of it. Just as he promised to restore his people by dealing with their own corruption and that of their enemies. You see, there is a warning here. Don't get on the wrong side of God. But for those who know God, who have turned from their transgressions, there's great comfort. We feel our impotency, don't we, to change our world. We feel it. That God will act faithfully and true to character towards the creation that he loves. But how and when will he do it? That's the question. And what happened to all those great promises of Isaiah? What happened to that great prophecy prophecy about Jerusalem? Well, historically, actually, not much. There was a return to Jerusalem after the great exile of God's judgement but it never lived up to the prophecy in Isaiah. There was never this world centre that everybody came to. It was never that. It was never this place of glory and light. Historically, it doesn't seem like much came of it. What about the appointed conqueror? What about him? Luke 4, chapter 16, verses 16 to 21. When Jesus came to Nazareth, he had been brought up, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. I'm reading from Luke 4, verse 16. As was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Isaiah 61, 1-2 is what he read out. He rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He read it out, and as he read it out, to proclaim his message from God, he was claiming that place of the anointed conqueror. 
may not be the kind of kingly individual that Isaiah had in mind, but Jesus himself takes this title to himself. He goes on to enact it what's more. He heals. He brings comfort to those mornings. He raises people from the dead. Most importantly, he dies and is raised. There's great mystery in the death of Jesus Christ. But it's in Jesus' death that God is exacting that judgement that he promises in Isaiah. See, the anointed conqueror has blood on his clothes. It's his own blood. He absorbs to himself the vengeance and wrath of God on sin in his death. He becomes that anointed conqueror with the blood on his robes. But it's not the blood of them, it's his own. In Jesus, God is saving through his wrath on sin. What's more, it leaves those who entrust themselves to Jesus with a glorious hope. When you're in line with the anointed conqueror, when you're on his team, those promises of Isaiah are fulfilled in his people. Through our anointed conqueror, Christians are described as the bride of Christ as God's holy people, as priests and ministers, describes the people, a people that has people from all nations coming in to faith in Christ. That's where the prophecy is uh, fulfilled. It's not a city. It's not Jerusalem restored. It's in the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a great Zion where all the nations come in, where there is peace and righteousness where all the nations are blessed. And there's an ultimate fulfilment even beyond that. The end of the Bible finishes with a picture of Zion, a heavenly city, which God lights. There is no light there and spoken in exactly the same terms as Isaiah. There is great... God has exacted, exacted his wrath and retribution to bring salvation in Jesus. There will be a day, will be a day when it will be complete where there will be a new creation in which God will dwell, people from every nation gathering around God, glorifying him. That will be a great day. We live in the life of Isaiah's prophecy. We wait for that great day. He is faithful. He will do it. Let's pray.